welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gaslitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Robert Port and Millie Bombush, and today we're talking about identifying investment fraud and misconduct. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today Jason Doss, owner and partner at the Doss Law Firm, and David Bain, owner of the law offices of David A. Bain. So I'd like to start by asking each of you just to give us a brief overview of your practices. Yeah, my name is Jason Doss. I'm the owner of the Doss Firm. We're a law firm based in Marietta, Georgia, and we represent investors all over the country who have uh, lost money as a result of financial advisors and their firms engaging in misconduct or worse, financial fraud. I have been doing this about 15 years, written a couple of books. One was called The uh, Retirement Challenge that was in bookstores. It was released in like 2009. And I also wrote a book called The Securities Practitioner's Guide to Securities Arbitration, which is used in law schools all over the country to teach students about securities arbitration, which is where these disputes are resolved. I'm the past president of the National Organization of Attorneys that focuses on helping investors in these types of disputes. And I'm currently the president of a foundation devoted to investor education to prevent financial fraud. David? I wish I could say I've written books, but barely read any books lately. I'm David Bain. I'm a sole practitioner in Midtown. Been doing that for the last 11 years. Before that, I was with a class action firm for about eight years. I tell people that my practice is representing angry investors in all sorts of capacities, sometimes in court, sometimes in an arbitration forum, as Jason was just mentioning. I have represented angry investors. Investors who are angry with directors and officers of companies, auditors, investment bankers, broker dealers, investment advisors, venture capitalists, you name it. Jason was saying that he's the president of the past president of Piaba. Um, I'm currently the president of the Atlanta chapter of the Federal Bar Association. So I got that going for me. <laughs> but humble solo practitioner in Midtown for the last 11 years and just glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, we, we thank both of you for being with us. Let's, let's start off this way. And, and as both of you know, I, I, our firm uh, has this type of practice as well. And, and what I'd like to understand from each of you is, is this. The, the title of our show today is Identifying Investment Fraud and Misconduct. So let's say a new client calls you and they say, I've got XYZ problem. Can you walk our listeners through how you determine whether or not, in fact, they have a problem that attorneys like you and David and our firm could address? Sure. So I always tell clients that in order to have a viable lawsuit, you have to have two things. You have to be able to prove liability and you have to be able to prove damages. What that means is liability is did the broker or did the firm run the red light or not? Uh, and then secondly, did they hit anybody? So you have to have both in order to have a viable lawsuit or it's not worth pursuing. And there's different degrees of liability. So on the most, it's sort of a spectrum, but there's suitability claims, which is basically saying that the investment that was sold to me 
was inappropriate for my investment objectives and risk tolerances, all the way to actual financial fraud where someone was misled, stolen from, you know, you name it. But um, there's a myriad of ways in which investors are ripped off. The book always ends the same way, which is the bad guy ends up with the money. So that's kind of how I start off and we go through the story. And, you know, I believe, and I've just from experience believe that people do rational things based on the information that they're given. They hire financial professionals because they don't have the expertise to do that. So they rely on that expertise when it comes to selecting investments. You know, that relationship is a relationship of trust which gives rise to certain legal duties like the fiduciary duty, which I'm sure we'll talk about more later in the show. So that's really the core of these claims is, did the investor trust that the professional was doing what the professional told them that they were supposed to do? And was that advice appropriate for that investor? And so we kind of go from there, but that sort of sets the table, I think. Okay. And and David, Jason was speaking about claims where there may be a professional advisor involved. And you can certainly speak to that. But in your summary of what you do, you also referred to claims involving officers and directors and and other folks, which are also a variety of, of investment misconduct. So if you could speak to, again, how you analyze a potential case, a client who's called you, as well as things outside of what may be your traditional broker, advisor, uh, customer relationship. Sure. And I agree with the points Jason just made. I would add a third one. You need liability, you need damages, and the third prong is collectability. In some of the questions about investment frauds and the thing that immediately comes to mind, it's sort of the catastrophic situation, a Ponzi scheme or a variation on a Ponzi scheme where someone has put all their money into something and finds out years later that none of it ever existed. It was just a straight up theft, basically. And in that situation, often what we find is that the primary wrongdoer, the guy who orchestrated all of this, is gone. He's either he's sitting in jail somewhere, he's on the run, he's um, you know, otherwise judgment-proof. So in that situation, the, the Ponzi, or as I say, a variation on a classic Ponzi scheme, you're looking for somebody else to try to recover part of your money from. And if, you're, if anyone's familiar with the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, they had a lot of success in that. In, in that situation, the question I always ask is, how is it that you came to invest in this? And often the answer is something that I, I, I don't like to hear. It's, uh, oh, I got a, a cold call from somebody or I got uh, a direct mail solicitation in the mail. Came from nowhere. In those situations, there's really not a whole lot you can do. There's no, no one to look to pay for your losses. But sometimes the answer is, oh, an investment advisor told me it would be a good idea to invest here because he went to high school with the guy. In that situation, investment advisors often have insurance policy. They may have money of their own. They're, they're still going to be there to be sued, basically. As you were saying, Robert, sometimes those cases are brought in the arbitration forum, FINRA, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in more detail. Other times they're brought in court. I personally prefer to be in court, but there's a lot to be said for each forum. One of the things you just mentioned, David, I I think is very true, which is, and I know we've all seen this, when, when you have someone who's engaged in misconduct, particularly a Ponzi scheme, 
there's a lot of money that flows through their hands, but there's very little money that's left. When they, when they fall down, usually find that they've got exotic cars, they've bought houses. And I think all three of us know of a case where the Ponzi schemer actually bought a piece of the Berlin Wall, as, as I recall, uh, which they eventually auctioned off for, for almost nothing. And it's very hard for people who've been had in that way to, to get a sense that all this money is, is gone for, for whatever reason. Let's drill down a little bit more, Jason, on what you talked about. You mentioned the word suitability. Can you explain how that is involved in the analysis we make when we look at whether or not someone might have a viable claim? Sure. And so this would be in the context of of hiring a financial firm, you know, a brokerage firm, a Wall Street firm to manage your money. Those types of firms are governed by certain rules that are set by an organization called FINRA, F-I-N-R-A. FINRA is an organization that was created and allowed to exist by the Securities Exchange Commission to regulate the brokerage industry. So FINRA has two parts to it. The first part is the regulatory part where they regulate the firms and the, and the individuals who are giving purchasing and selling securities. Uh, the second part of it is a dispute resolution forum. And so when it comes to the regulatory part, there is some sort of overlap when it comes to uh, how these rules apply in the arbitration process. So one of those rules is called the know your customer rule or the suitability rule. So every time that a recommendation is made by a financial advisor to an investor, that for an investment, the broker and the firm are required to ensure that the investment is suitable for the investor for what their needs are. So there's a number of factors that go, goes into the suitability analysis, but in general, it's a two-step process. The first process is to ask the question and they have to establish that the product is appropriate for anyone called the general suitability analysis. And if it, if it uh, satisfies that standard, then you get to the customer-specific suitability analysis, which goes into, you know, what is the age of the investor? What is the investment experience and educational background of the investor? How sophisticated is the investor to be able to evaluate risks associated with the investment? How much risk are they willing to tolerate when it comes to these investments, are they willing to lose it all? Are they, are they going to invest in the casino fund? Uh, is that what they want? Or is it really somebody who's very conservative and who's really not gonna, going to be able to uh, stomach the ups and downs of a particular investment? So those are the general guideposts, I would say, for suitability analysis. And so part of our job, and Robert and David and, and, and me, we, we've done this many times, you have to sort of talk to the investor when you're evaluating the claim, figure out what their needs are. Did they want income? Did they want growth? Did they want both? And then what were they put into as far as what the investment did and how it performed? So uh, that's how you kind of approach these suitability cases. David, how often do you find that in some of these cases, the investor just didn't understand? You know, whether it's due to a lack of sophistication or a lack of proper explanation by the investment advisor, but simply did not know what was going on and what the investment meant and what the risks were. My experience has been that that's true most of the time. I think think that's the way industry likes it. They purposely 
make things difficult to understand, difficult to see exactly what kind of fees the broker is taking out of your account. An example would be, say, a 401k, where the investment options, I know of a situation where for a retirement plan, the investor checked off you know, what sort of investment risk tolerance they wanted. Do you want aggressive investments, somewhat ing- aggressive, somewhat conservative, or very conservative? If you check aggressive, they say, great, well, we'll put you in our aggressive fund. Say somewhat aggressive, we'll put you in the somewhat aggressive fund. So instead of paying 1.5%, you're actually paying 3% without ever knowing it. And that information is available, but you really have to know where to look, and most people don't know that. If I could follow up on that point, um, I think that over the last 15 to 20 years, investments have become more complex than they used to be. The traditional investments, stock, a bond, a CD, those sorts of investments are, have, have sort of gone to the wayside by and large when it comes to the ordinary investor. The reason for that is that for a long period of time now, we've had a low interest rate environment where you can't go to a bank and get a CD that pays any interest. So as a result of that, the insurance, life insurance industry, as well as the brokerage industry in Wall Street, have created products that fill that void, that provide higher you know, yields than a CD would historically. The trade-off, though, is that the product is a lot more complex than the way people are. And there are also products that are sold to people. So Take, for example, a variable annuity, which is a very common investment sold to retirees. Retirees don't wake up in the morning saying, I want to buy a variable annuity. Let me do some research. These are products that are sold to people. And I've actually had cases where we've had the, the luck, I guess, of hiring experts who are marketing experts, top-notch experts, to talk about that marketing process When an ordinary person is confronted with a complex investment, like, for example, a variable annuity, they don't understand it. Uh, Oftentimes, the brokers and the people who are selling them don't understand it. They don't understand how they work. All they know is what the sales points are. And the sales points are very simple. It provides higher, you know, a lot of income for you. It'll satisfy your short-term and long-term needs. There are trade-offs that are very, very important with those types of investments. And it's not just variable annuities. It could be private placements. It could be a lot of different things that fill that void of providing income for, uh, for folks. And they're particularly targeted towards retirees. Retirees who are in need of retirement income are oftentimes the targets of being sold these complex products. And like I said, all they're sold is the sales points, uh, which is, and you'll see terms like guaranteed income. You'll see terms like, lifetime income benefits. These are very simple terms to understand, but the way they actually work in the product itself is nothing like the way it's sold. And so uh, oftentimes people fall victim to inappropriate investment recommendations due to the complexity of the investment. One of the the terms you used repeatedly in, in what you just said, Jason, is the word product. And this is fairly simplistic on my part, but when I hear the word product, I I sort of have my uh, antenna up for something that might be inappropriate. Let me follow with with this question. Uh, 
Jason talked about suitability. There's also the concept of fiduciary duty. David, if you could talk about that, the distinctions between the two and, and what's going on in the industry and in the investment world with respect to fiduciary duties issues, maybe first explain what fiduciary duty means to our listeners. Sure, sure. And it, building on something that Jason was saying, the, the complexity of these products has grown over the years. As I was saying, I think industry often wants them to be complex and difficult to understand. And it creates it creates this dynamic that just didn't exist 50 years ago. 50 years ago, the standard sort of retirement plan was a pension. Um, someone would work for a company for their entire life, and at retirement, they would get a pension paid by the company. Those still exist. They're basically known as defined uh, benefit plans, would be a, the, the pension model. The one that people are seeing more and more is the, the 401k or some similar plan, uh, a defined contribution plan. The difference between those two is that with the defined benefit, the company is holding on to the money. So they've hired an investment professional to manage the money for them, invest it appropriately, keep the fees to a minimum. That's the, the person's job. It's in the hands of a pro. On the defined contribution side, the investment risk and the investment fees are borne by you, the, the, um, the employee. And, and, and so the you, employee ends up essentially having to do it yourself in terms of making investment decisions. Exactly, exactly. And, and you presented with this question that just didn't come up 50 years ago. No one said to your grandparents, which mutual fund do you think you ought to gamble your retirement on? But people are forced to make that decision every day. Robert, your question was about fiduciary standard. Uh, Jason talked a minute ago about suitability, that that is the standard that brokers are held to, the know your customer, um, don't put them in anything that is unsuitable, don't recommend any investments that are unsuitable for their situation. There's another standard, the fiduciary standard, that applies in certain circumstances now, and I think really should apply everywhere, uh, but that's just me. The, the Department of Labor the DOL, Department of Labor, agreed with that as it pertains to retirement investments. And they had promulgated a rule known as the, basically known as the fiduciary rule that was going to apply a fiduciary duty standard to any advice uh, rendered in the context of retirement investments, basically. A fiduciary standard is basically being a fiduciary means that you have an obligation in certain circumstances to put someone else's interest meaning your customer, put the customer's interest ahead of your own. And I can tell you that right now, that is not what most brokers do. They, uh, a suitability standard allows them to put their own interest ahead of the customer, and they often do. They'll sell variable annuities. They'll sell things like that that generate the most fees for the broker, and they don't worry about the, the customer's returns or the customer's fees. Um, and that is perfectly legal in the environment today. The Department of Labor had promulgated this proposed new rule, the fiduciary rule, that was going to change all of that as it pertained to retirement investments anyway. And what I found very interesting about that was industry's response to the proposed rule. They went ballistic because that was going to turn things upside down for them. Um, they don't want to put the customer's interests ahead of their own. And um, basically their response, the industry response to the proposed rule was, well, um, 
you know, if we're not going to be allowed to steal from our customers, then we don't want the, the small accounts anymore, which of course is, is absurd. Someone, someone would uh, be happy to handle small accounts. Like that. I, again, this, this is just me, but I, I find it um, personally interesting. Or my, my own sense is that I, I think anybody who manages someone else's money ought to be held to a fiduciary standard. And it does not seem to be that much of a stretch to ask folks to do that. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Robert Port and Millie Bombush from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking with Jason Doss, owner and partner at the Doss Law Firm, and David Bain, owner and uh, owner at the law offices of David Bain. A question for you about the fiduciary rule. In the estate and trust world, where Robert and I practice a lot, you know, an executor has a duty to act in the best interest of the estate and beneficiaries. A trustee has a duty to act only in the best interest of the trust beneficiaries. Um, this is just, I think, surprising to a lot of people to realize that brokers and investment advisors don't have to act in the best interest of their customers. I mean, is this when the fiduciary rule was proposed, David? You talked about the reaction of industry. What was the reaction of everybody else? So I have, for a number of years now, been very active on a federal and state level in Washington D.C. and and locally here in advocating for a fiduciary standard to apply to everyone who gives advice for investments. The truth of the matter is this. When firms like, uh, you know, I'm sure I can say it, but the, the firms that you know of, the big Wall Street firms that have commercials on TV uh, talking about uh, the financial advisor being uh, a trusted family friend, attending weddings, providing all these needs, they advertise like fiduciaries. They advertise like, you know, you're in good hands, these sorts of things. What do they mean by that? They market themselves as being trustworthy. But when you actually sue them for bad advice in these arbitration processes, which are private disputes, the answer that you're going to get is we're just an order taker. We don't owe you a fiduciary duty. That's one of the biggest things that clients are shocked about when they get into these disputes with the firms for giving bad advice is we don't owe you a fiduciary duty. The nuances of all this are more complex. It does depend on the title of the person. Most people understand what a financial advisor is generically, someone who's giving them advice on their investments. But there are legal distinctions between different categories of financial advisors. In other words, not all financial advisors are created equal. There are investment advisors, and then there are registered representatives or stockbrokers. Investment advisors if they are investment advisors, they actually do have a statutory federal duty to act in your best interest. If they're a stockbroker who works for a firm, then there is no federal standard for a fiduciary duty. But state law, like Georgia, luckily, has you know a fiduciary obligation imposed on stockbrokers. So you know all of this stuff about the federal, the Department of Labor's fiduciary standard, all that's meant to do is to create a federal standard for imposing a fiduciary duty on anyone who's providing investment advice. But luckily in Georgia, for example, there are state requirements that require, just like in your trust and estates practices, 
imposing a fiduciary duty on a stockbroker if there's a confidential relationship that exists between the investor and and the financial advisor, regardless of their title. When a client comes to you and says, "My um, my investment is tanked. You know, this is going down. I must have a claim. There must be misconduct." Um, does the mere fact that it's gone down bring give rise to a claim, or are there? Do you end up saying it went down and there's no claim here? You've lost a lot of money, but you've got nothing here. The answer is it depends. <laughs> Very um, lawyerly answer. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, ten years ago we had a, a market environment where the stock market as a whole uh, lost forty percent of its value in the course of a year. In that situation, you can expect that everyone is going to have losses, and it's you know it's difficult to to pin that on any particular individual for giving you bad advice. Just there's no way to win in that kind of a market. On the other hand, in the last, in the time since then, the market's been up as a whole um, and a, a considerable bull market that we've been enjoying the last several years here. In that sort of environment, you really should be making money. And not only should you be making money, you should be keeping up with the market. To illustrate this point, if you look at the average returns for the S&P 500 index over the last 50 years, if you had invested in an S&P 500 index fund, which are available now, not sure they were available 50 years ago, but if you bought every stock in the S&P 500, um, over the last 50 years, you could expect it to return about 10% a year if the dividends were reinvested rather than taken out. So you can expect a 10-year a 10% return if the 50-year historical averages hold, minus cost of living, call that between 2 or 3% per year. In real terms, the overall market, the S&P 500, is returning about 7% per year. If you're familiar with the, the rule of 72, it's sort of a shorthand formula for figuring out how long it's going to take your money to double given a certain compound rate of return. In that situation, if the S&P is returning approximately 7% in real terms, 7 divided into 72 is about 10, you can expect your money to double every 10 years based on historical averages over the last 50 years in an index fund with negligible costs. I mentioned before, though, the mutual fund, the aggressive mutual fund that was actually a fund of funds with two layers of fees. Instead of paying negligible fees for an index fund, somebody might be paying 3% to a broker for a fund that is really not going to outperform. Some years it'll beat the S&P, other years it won't, but they'll get their 3% every year. And what that 3% does is cut into the investor's returns. Instead of counting on a 7% return every year, you're looking at closer to a 4% return. And if you apply the rule of 72, 4% divided into 72, instead of doubling every 10 years, as it should, it's doubling every 18 years. And you can imagine the devastating impact that that's going to have on someone's retirement savings over the course of a career. David, one of the things you just identified, which I think is important to think of, is the benchmark. What's the appropriate benchmark for the investor? And of course, the returns you identified are not straight line. We all know the market goes up, the market goes down. From my perspective, you need to look at 
what the market's done relative to the investor. You know, for a young person, they want to be made perhaps more aggressive than what the market would return. For someone closer to retirement, they want to dial it, may want to dial it back some. That's one point. The other point is, I think when all of us have looked at Ponzi schemes, we look at things that are promising, you know, 20% a year. I've seen some 20% a month. And we, from what we do, we know that that is just not possible. But the fact is that many people out there, because they don't have a good reference point about what is reasonable and doable, they often get sucked into that. I agree with that. And, you know, it's very difficult to know if the tide is up and you're at the beach. It's hard to know whether, you know, you, you know your shorts are down uh, too far, you know. So the market's been going up for several years. People, by and large, look at the bottom line when they get their monthly statements from their brokerage account to see whether they made money or lost money. So it's very difficult during these times to know whether your account's being mismanaged, but it can be mismanaged even in times of this, uh, when, time, when the market has been going up over a period of time. When the market turns down again, there are people who lost 30% in 2008, 2009, there are people who lost 70%. And that's what I think, Robert, what you were talking about, these benchmarks, particularly in down markets, to know whether or not your losses were commiserate with what the index or some sort of a benchmark was. And there are things as, as, as uh, higher risk, high reward. There's also things called high risk, low reward investments, where you are exposing yourself to a lot of risk and you're not going to get the return out of it. And when there's a downturn, you will lose more money than other people whose money was invested appropriately did. So if you believe that you were a victim of bad advice, you really need to consult with an attorney who specializes in this area because you, number one, uh, there's an attorney-client relationship there where everything's confidential. The lawyer won't go and call the brokerage firm without your express permission and, and cause problems. And oftentimes, those types of lawyers who specialize in these securities disputes will evaluate your portfolio uh, for free. You can get free consultations for that. So if you're not an expert in investing and you're not making decisions and you're trusting a trusted professional and you believe that there are problems, you really do need to find an expert who can do that. And I would recommend finding an attorney to do that. If you go to another financial advisor, you've always got the problem of risking where the financial advisor has a motivation to tell you that the portfolio was not managed appropriately. And, you know, at least the lawyer is not selling you something. So that's a, a great segue into the next question I wanted to ask both of you is we've talked already about um, investments that may have higher fees than the investor realized or highly inappropriate fees. We've talked about investments that are unsuitable for a particular investor's you know, age or life circumstances. What are some of the other problems or issues that you see that are uh, the source of misconduct or possible fraud? Well, Jason, a moment ago mentioned the high risk, low reward possibility. And the thing that came to mind immediately for me was the, the variable annuity mm -hmm. uh, situation. As we said before, it's a complex product. It's difficult for anybody to understand. I, I defy anyone to look at a typical variable annuity um, monthly statement or quarterly statement and tell me what the balance is. I mean, even something that, that fundamental. 
there are different numbers for, you know, if, if you were to retire now, if you were to, uh, the, the cash balance is one thing. The cash balance with the bonus premium is another thing. There'll be five or six different numbers to choose from there. The particularly difficult situation there is that often the variable annuities are sold in the context of an IRA. Uh, we've talked before about IRAs, and if anyone is not quite sure what that is, basically it's, a, it's an account that has certain tax advantages that allow investments to grow tax-free. When we say our IRAs, that's what we're talking about. And often you'll see brokers selling products like that, variable annuities, to investors using their IRA funds. If anybody ever tries to sell you a variable annuity in your IRA, hold on to your wallet. Um, because, and you need to be talking to a lawyer because that person is not acting in your best interest. The only conceivable justification for a variable annuity is that it grows tax-free. It's a complex product. It is structured so that you don't pay taxes on certain gains as they, as they come in. But your IRA already does that. So basically, you're being charged for a benefit that you don't need, that you already have in that account. And something I tell people, if anybody tries to sell you a variable annuity in an IRA, hold on to your wallet, yeah, call you, your lawyer. You, you can't multiply the tax deferral by, exactly. by getting an I, I, a annuity within an IRA. Jason? Sure. I would say that I've had the benefit or misfortune, I don't know which it is, to see things over a period of time and in and, and talking to investor victims over a period of 15 years, um, you start to see trends. And so the trend from like 2000 to 2002, uh, that was when the technology bubble burst and there were a lot of claims that were related to over-concentrations in technology-based mutual funds. So it was called the tech wreck era of, of what we do. The, the financial crisis of 2009, a lot of those investments that people lost a lot of money in were investments that uh, were linked to mortgage-backed securities. And so that wave has kind of come and gone as well. In the last five years, the trend has been, I would call them generically alternative investments. And this kind of goes back to a point that we were talking about earlier. Alternative investments are products that are sold to people to fill that void for income. And so there are common problems with certain types of alternative investments. Non-traded REITs, that's real estate investment trusts, are commonly missold to folks. Oil and gas, limited partnerships, and private placements uh, over the last few years have been a source of, of problems. Not coincidentally, these are products that are high commission products. Uh, like I said, you can always skip to the end of the book and the bad guy ends up with the money. So these are high commission products. They're sold to people for the high commissions. And so what I have found is if, if an account has one non-traded REIT or one oil and gas limited partnership, it will be chock full of them and you end up with an over-concentration in high commission alternative investments. And that's the current trend that's going on right now. Sure. And to, to follow up on that, I don't know if this was... I read this years ago. I read a lot of Warren Buffett. I'm a big fan of his. I don't know if this was Warren Buffett or someone of that ilk, but the advice was uh, when you're investing, invest in companies that make products that you're familiar with. Invest in your cell phone company. Invest in 
the company that makes the sodas that you like or the food that you like, investments that you can understand. And as someone else said one time, if somebody is telling you that it's trying to push an investment on you and you don't understand it, why would you want to buy it? At the flip side of that, I've also heard something similar where, where the suggestion is that if you can't explain why you invested in something to maybe a, a teenager, very simply and clearly, again, why should you buy into this? Why should you put your hard-earned money in something like that? Exactly. And I think that's a good basic rule to keep in mind. I do, I do want to turn in the time we've got remaining maybe to um, some remedies, <laughs> what we can do for financial uh, misconduct and fraud. But first, just one quick question. The failure to diversify, um, is, that, is that something that's actionable uh, is, as misconduct or fraud? So the answer is yes. Most of the time, the most common form of an unsuitable recommendation is an overconcentration in a certain type of product. So like I was saying earlier, the tech rec era of 2000 to 2002 I would find you'd see accounts that were 100% in mutual funds that were all invested in technology stocks. So that's actionable. You look at the portfolio as a whole and you look to see how it was allocated. There's three buckets of money that you would invest in. Um, There's cash, there are bonds, and then there are equities, which are stocks. And there's a mix depending on how risk averse you are uh, and what your needs are, if you are, for example, an income investor, you would probably want to have more of a concentration or a higher percentage of bonds in your portfolio. If you are looking for growth from the stock market, then you would have more money invested in equities. And, and so those all work together uh, to create a diversified portfolio. If you're 100% in stocks, you're not diversified, even if you have a thousand different stocks, because you're all in the equity market. So those are the most, that's a very common form of an unsuitable portfolio that, you know, like I said, you would, you would if, you, if you are over-concentrated in equities and the stock market goes down, you're going to lose more money than people who had a diversified portfolio uh, that included bonds, for example. Yeah, what, I, what I've often said is that Diversification doesn't mean that you have Microsoft, Google, Dell, and Facebook. As Jason said, it's, it's not only different types of securities, but different categories and classes of securities. Right. But it, I would add that diversification, if your broker says, well, uh, you've got stocks and you've got bonds, but what you need to do is transfer some money out of this account and invest in this company that owns a gold mine. And your money will be tied up for years. It's illiquid. And there's no guarantee on the return. But, if someone's trying to sell you one of these alternative investments, what you need are illiquid REITs, you know, real estate investment trusts. I think you have to look out for that because I, I'm sure that um, a lot of brokers use the concept of diversification to say, well, you need to, you need to move some of your money out of the market. Right, right. A good shorthand of how to figure out whether or not your portfolio is uh, allocated appropriately. It, normally, brokerage accounts, the account statements have a pie chart right on the first page that shows you sort of the broad categories of, of what the investments are in your account. If it's 100% in equities, you need to, to talk to somebody or have a conversation with your financial advisor about what your actual risk tolerance and investment objectives are because 
that's a very speculative allocation. And so you'd like to see, you know, a certain percent of bonds, certain percent of equities, and a certain percent of cash in that pie chart. So uh, as as we're getting uh, close to the end of our show, let, let's uh, get some suggestions from you as to how someone may protect themselves. We've talked uh, about understanding what returns may be in, in the market. We've talked about, um, you know, whether you can explain the investment to someone. What are the uh, some of the other very quick tips you would give people so they can, if you will, see potential red flags so they can protect themselves uh, from, from any potential misconduct? I would say there's a couple of, of very common facts that happen. If you have found yourself over the last period of time looking at your monthly statements and seeing that your account values have gone down and you call your financial advisor and ask them what's going on and they say, stay the course or stay in it, it'll come back. Or they don't return your call. Or they don't return your call, which is a, a big red flag. Um, then you need to, to find some, some help if, you, if it happens over a period of time. That's, a, that's an indication. When you're calling saying, ah, I don't like what's going on here, and they tell you to stay the course, that's an indication that your risk tolerance is too low for what your portfolio is in. The other thing I would say is it may be daunting to try to start the process of trying to find help. Uh, oftentimes, people who are in this position and there's a breach of a trust relationship uh, with the financial advisor oftentimes have negative emotional feelings about blaming themselves, feeling guilty uh, for, for falling victim to this. Uh, it, it's particularly bad, I've just found, with, with uh, older men who are, have been in charge of their financial, you know, for their family and they've, something bad has happened. They're oftentimes very hard on themselves, uh, and, and women are too. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that when you are looking at a problem in hindsight, the red flags are a lot more glaring than they were on the front side. And the truth of the matter is you just trusted the wrong person, uh, but it's not your fault um, as far as what was selected and all of that kind of stuff in your portfolio. So. Um, those are the two things I would say. Just go find help. And if you find yourself calling concerned about the downturn in your account and the broker says, stay the course, you need to find some help. The thought that came to me, Robert, was that a situation where people need to be particularly vigilant is when they come into a large chunk of money suddenly. Um, we might think of a lottery winner, and everybody knows that lottery winners, you know, Distant relatives come out of the woodwork asking for money when someone wins a lottery. Doesn't need to be something that severe, though. It can be um, someone who retires from, um, you know, the phone company, and they have the option of taking a lump sum distribution from their defined benefit plan. In many plans, you're eligible to do that. You can take half the money out right away, and that sounds great to someone who's freshly retired and would like to have some of that money to spend. It could be someone who comes into an inheritance or someone who sells uh, you know, a large piece of property that's been in the family for years. There are predators who monitor the probate records, who have a list of people who are retiring from these companies and who can find out who it is that's taking these distributions and monitor real estate records. They look for people who have just come into a large chunk of money. So if you ever find yourself in that happy situation 
lookout because um, there are people out there preying on people who find themselves in that situation and may not know what to do with the money. Yeah, you potentially have a target on your back. Exactly. And so my suggestion was going to be if, you know, they say that if you win the lottery, the first thing you should do before you tell anybody is get a lawyer who can help you handle it correctly. Someone who comes into a large chunk of money, I would make that same recommendation. Talk to a lawyer, talk to an accountant. Well, an accountant could probably do it, but let's, let's say talk to your lawyer. Get some legal advice about you know, what to do with it. Uh, if you're thinking of a particular investment advisor that you like, call your lawyer. Uh, you know, let the lawyer check it out and see, if, um, see what the legal advice is. All good advice, and we all hope to you know, inherit a chunk of money. (laughs) We'll know what to do with it now. Thank you. Um, As we are wrapping up our show, I want to thank you both for participating. I think we've learned a lot. And just so that our listeners can get a hold of you, uh, if they are so inclined, I'd like you to provide for us your contact information, you know, website, social media, uh, whatever you got, so our listeners can reach out to you. We'll start with you, David. Sure. It's, uh, I'm David Bain. Uh, My office is in Midtown. And the phone number is 404-724-9990. Actually, I said earlier that I represent Angry Investors, and I was actually able to register angryinvestors.com. So uh, you can look for me there as well. Yeah, this is Jason Doss. Our website for our firm is dossfirm.com. Our telephone number is uh, 770-578-1314. And my email address is Jason Doss at DossFirm.com. I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gesselitz Frankel, please go to our website at GesselitzFrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Jason Doss, owner and partner at the Doss Firm, and David Bain, owner at the law offices of David L. Bain. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. (laughs) 